serve a God who is reigning and who's powerful. And I wanted all of this passage read, even though I preached on the first six verses last week, um, because I feel like it's important to see how this whole chapter fits together. Okay, so mainly I'm going to be preaching today from verses 7 through 15, but I want you to see those verses in context with the first six verses, okay? So in the, in the chapter, as it is laid out for us, verses 1 through 3 That is talking about what we would call as the inaugurated reign of Christ. So when we talk about the coming of Christ's kingdom, it came in three stages or phases. Okay, phase one is the inauguration of his kingdom. That's when Christ came to earth in his first coming, and he sets up his kingdom for the first time. So in his incarnation, in his ministry, in the way that he preaches, in the way that he heals people, in the way that he shows us he has power over demons, in the way that he shows us that he has power over nature. All of this is the setting up of his kingdom. In particular, his kingdom is inaugurated in his, in his cross and his death as he pays for sin. And as he pays for sin, he is victorious over Satan. And so we see that here in verses 1 through 3 that Christ binds Satan from his people. His blood is more powerful. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And all of that happens at the cross and, importantly, in his resurrection. In his resurrection, Jesus declares over death that he is the Lord. On the cross, he declares over sin that he is the Lord. And so Jesus, in his first coming, inaugurates his kingdom. And kind of the the climax of this first phase is the ascension, where Jesus then goes up as the crucified, resurrected human being and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it is from there that he reigns. And so that's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 6 is what we would call the continuation phase of the kingdom. This is the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign, which... We don't believe, as I talked about last week, we don't believe it's a literal thousand years. We believe it is a figurative number that means a really long, perfect amount of time. And so Christ is now reigning from heaven, and he's reigning in heaven with the saints that have gone to be with him, and he's reigning over the saints and through the saints that are still on the earth, that is his church. Verses 4 through 6 talk about that. But between verses 6 and 7, you get to what I would call the, uh, the climax or the, uh, the consummation of the kingdom. The, the fullness of the kingdom of God comes in the end, and, and the transition happens between 6 and 7. So the passage that I'm mainly in today, verses 7 through 15, talks about the future reign of Christ. Okay, so we had his inaugurated reign, his continuing reign, and now we're talking about the future reign of Christ. But it's important to think about today in the future reign of Christ in light of this, in the fact that the cross and the resurrection sets everything in motion. Everything that we read about in the future, it already started in the past. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, there was this catalytic effect that it had on the world that will one day reach its fullness, which we'll find really uh, next week in, in 21 and 22 in the new heavens and the new earth. But what we find here in verses 7 through 15 
It has to do with, and we need to see it in the context of the cross and the empty tomb, Christ's reign over the church, and then ultimately what will happen in the end. So this passage we have today is incredibly encouraging, I believe, for three reasons, three reasons in particular. And if we can see this future that we have with the Lamb of God, then it will encourage us in the present in three particular ways. We can be encouraged that Satan and his demons will be utterly and ultimately defeated. We can be encouraged that there is not just one book, but two. There's not just one book of records of our rights and wrongs, but there's two books, including the book of life. And then we can be encouraged that Jesus one day will make all things new. Let me pray for us. God, uh, I pray that you would uh, use me this morning to bring um, illumination through the power of the Holy Spirit to these words. And I pray that you would encourage us today as we seek to follow and serve you. Lord God, we thank you that you set up your reign, that your reign is continuing now, and that one day we can look forward to the day when it will come in fullness would you teach us more about that now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, we can be encouraged that Satan and his demons will be defeated. That's verses 7 through 10. Let's look at Satan's ultimate end and then how that can encourage us for today. Okay, so first of all, let's look at Satan's ultimate end according to Revelation 20. In verse, verse 7, it seems from this teaching that Satan, though he is bound now in some very real ways from the work that he wanted to do in the world, that he was doing in the world before Christ, he is currently bound up. He cannot rule over the church in the ways that he would have been able to. He can't rule over the church at all, but he can't influence and affect the church because Christ's blood is shed. But there's going to be this moment in the end when he is released from prison and he's going to go out for some kind of a special final tour of deception. And it's important for us to know that as we look forward to the end, because somehow part of God's planned end game in his own sovereignty is to allow Satan to do this, to go out and to deceive the nations again. And so there will be a certain number of people and nations who will become allies against the lamb. We've seen this in Revelation, multiple places. One of the things about Revelation is that there are these cycles of teaching. It's not linear, it's cyclical, and it goes through these different phases. But we've seen this before that there's going to be a moment when Satan comes out against the Lamb. Satan comes out with his people, the Lamb comes out with his people, and there's a battle, okay? So these forces that ally themselves against the Lamb here are called Gog and Magog, all right? So in the book of Ezekiel, the other place it's mentioned, Gog is a ruler from the land of Magog, but in the book of Revelation, Gog and Magog are nations under the rule of Satan. I don't think that's very important. I think the point is that these, some, somehow these two entities represent the allies against the Lamb, and they're going to uh, bring rulers together in a great battle, which is also called the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 16, 16, okay? So what can we learn about this battle from Revelation 20? Well, the forces that come against Yahweh will be vast and they will be organized and they will not just march out against God, but they will march out against the saints as well. I find it 
really interesting here, the choice of words that John uses. It says that the saints, uh, first of all, he says they are camping, which is kind of interesting. And the idea here is that the saints, in some ways that we are not seeking a lasting city here, we are, we are traveling, we are following the Lord wherever he calls us. You can think about the Old Testament imagery of the people of God having to move around and follow God wherever he leads. On the other hand, he says they are camping either near or in the beloved city. So in other ways, like a city represents a settling down and a building of culture and a making, a making a difference and setting up uh, something that God would, uh, that would glorify God in the world. So I love these two words that are kind of juxtaposed against each other. In some ways, we are people who are campers and we're just moving forward. And on the other way, that kind of represents the attitude of our hearts. And on the other hand, we are also building cities and we're building culture and we're trying to influence the world for the sake of God's glory. I think that's just really interesting the way that John describes it. But ultimately, God will come down from heaven. This is the return of the king. He will come down, and in the end, he will consume those who stand against him. In verse 10, we have the defeat of Satan. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and he is thrown there with the beast and the false prophet who kind of represent an unholy trinity. The beast and the false prophet have already been thrown into the lake of fire in chapter 19, verse 20. But now Satan joins them where they'll be tormented together day and night. So I want you to think about, before you just take it into our context, I want you to think about how this teaching would have impacted John's original readers. As they think about the forces that are allied against them, against the Lamb, against God's people as they are camping as they are seeking to build culture wherever they are, they would be thinking about Nero. They would be thinking about Rome. They would be thinking about all of these, these systems that are coming against them, that are making it difficult to be a Christian. Just like they might have been thinking of, we might think of Vladimir Putin or the Ayatollah of Iran or Kim Jong-un or Xi or whoever you want to insert. There are these powerful people in the world that that represent a way of doing life without God in it. There are many other examples of people that we could think of as well. And there are people that are being influenced by these leaders to think in ways that are, are not good. Um, and ultimately, I think what's at stake is that as we have these leaders of the world who are influencing massive amounts of people in ways that are not according to God's word, what, what's really at risk is that people will not know God, and they will just be following the leader uh, wherever he leads them. And that's what's really kind of at stake. Um, ultimately, if you think about it, we often are taught through media to think geopolitically all the time. But if you think church first, uh, what's at stake is we need, we need the gospel to go out, and we need opportunities for people to know the gospel and to worship Jesus. In the end, those who follow Satan, ultimately, those who do not follow the Lamb, those who, uh, in the earlier part of the passage, have the mark of the beast, and those who um, do not have the name of the Lamb of God written on their foreheads, what that means is this is a, a place of identity 
where you identify yourself for real. Um, if you are not with the lamb, you will be utterly and totally defeated. And this may be a difficult teaching in some ways, but the other way of looking at this is, is this. Don't you want this kind of generous justice in the end? Don't you want this kind of generous justice in the end? I'm stealing a title of one of Tim Keller's books by that name, which is an awesome book. But don't you want, on the one hand, a God who is generous to sinners, who is willing to die on the cross, who's willing to give up his own life to, to extend grace, to shed his own blood, so that you and me and many millions and millions of people, anyone who will receive his grace, cannot, cannot experience what we read about here and ultimately being thrown into the lake of fire, being condemned. Don't you want a God who is generous, but don't you also want a God who is just? Don't you also want a God who ultimately will set the world to rights, who ultimately graces this free offer that is given through his own bloodshed? It's a free offer of grace. And yet, people who don't receive that grace, there are many in the world, many examples of how it just runs amok and and there's all of this injustice in the world. Don't you want to see an end to all of that injustice? Don't you want a God of generous justice? If you don't want a God of generous justice, then what exactly are you looking for in the end? I think we need grace in this world, and I think we also need justice in this world. And the only way those two things can be accomplished is through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the one who is generous and just at the same time. I want you to notice that the punishment of Satan and evil will last forever. There is a theological idea called annihilationism, which teaches that once you go to hell, that your life is extinguished and you are no more. That is not what is taught in the Bible, in my opinion. There are people I respect, like John Stott, that disagree with me. Well, I disagree with them based on passages like this. I think forever and ever means forever and ever in this case. I think that hell is as eternal as heaven is eternal. And it's something that we have to wrestle with. It's not an encouraging idea, but I think it's what the Bible teaches. So it's only a matter of time before Satan is defeated. How should that encourage us as we live our lives today? Well, I mentioned last week that Christ has already bound Satan in some very real way, Jesus teaches in Mark 3:27, he says that he has bound the strong man, that is Satan in the context, so that now he can plunder his house. That means that we as Christians have spiritual authority through Jesus Christ to not follow the temptations of Satan. That being said, in this continuation phase of the kingdom, between the inauguration and the consummation, in this continuation phase, we can be and we are tempted and attacked by Satan. Satan knows God's word. He knows what human flourishing looks like. He knows what it would look like if you followed the Lord wholeheartedly and experienced the holiness and the beauty and the joy of following after Jesus all the way. He knows that, and he hates that potential outcome of your life, that, 
that real that will happen actually, but in, in this continuation phase, he does not want to see you grow and trust Jesus. He does not want that. And so the ideas that he may plant in your mind would be when we face anxieties or fears or potential insecurities. And I think coming out of COVID and all of the changes that we experience in the world and in our church and in families and friendships that this, this, we have this fear of insecurity that is real, that we all wrestle with. And I think in that fear, that potential, that anxiety that we experience, Satan will tempt you and encourage you even to not trust God. He will encourage you and he will tell you that trusting God or trusting others who are your brothers and sisters are, is, is just not going to work. Uh, you're going to need to trust yourself. And so Satan is always going to lead you toward isolation. He's always going to lead you toward uh, self-interest and self-effort. And he's not going to lead you toward trust, toward relationship with God and others. And ultimately, what he wants is your demise. He wants you, he wants to steal and, t and kill and destroy, John 10, 10. He does not want life abundantly for you. And so as we see the ultimate defeat of Satan, we see that he is the ultimate loser of history, the greatest loser, which should make us want to follow Christ more wholeheartedly. And when it comes right down to it, what that means is when it's late at night and you're tired and you're on your phone and you're tempted towards pornography or you're just tempted to endlessly scroll social media, that temptation, you know where that's going to take you. It doesn't take you good places. It doesn't have a track record of leading you toward good things. It doesn't. And yet Satan knows that and loves that about you and your phone late at night as long as you want to scroll. And so what you can remember is that ultimately this ends in total defeat. And what, what, where I need to be going in my heart and in my mind is toward Christ and toward community and not toward my phone. I need to be turning to Christ instead of away from him. Having this vision of the slain lamb crushing Satan on your mind can help you in real life to remember that there is life out there and we can find it and we have found it even in Jesus Christ. So the way number one to be encouraged that we can be encouraged from this passage is that Satan will be defeated ultimately and utterly and so we need to trust God now. The second way we can be encouraged is that there isn't just one set of books, but two. This is verses 11 through 15. So we can flash forward here to the final day of judgment, starting in verse 11. What do we see? Well, we see a throne. What does a throne indicate? It indicates that the one who sits on the throne is sovereign. He exercises all authority all power. This is a great throne. What might that indicate to us? That God is wholly self-adequate. He is, uh, there's a term, another theological term called it aseity, the aseity of God, that he exists in and of himself, and he does not need anyone else to exist. He alone sits there as the sovereign and why a white throne? Well, it shows his moral perfection, his holiness, his set apartness. So it shows that God alone is doing this. God alone is judging. 
There's no poll taken on social media. There's no aggregation of algorithms. It's God standing sovereign, sitting sovereign on his throne in this moment. Continuing in verse 11, it says that from his presence, earth and sky fled away. So this shows us now that this setting is somewhere not in the present world. It's somewhere in the future, somewhere in the future world. In fact, this probably describes like somewhere on the cusp of the future, but it's not the present. Verse 12, it says, all the dead are there. Okay, all of them, great and small. They're standing waiting for their moment with the Lord. Verse 13, the sea is opened. This throughout scripture, the sea is figuratively where the dead might be. I don't believe that's exactly literate. I mean, it's not a literal, uh, literal way to interpret. Uh, but the idea is that the sea is opening up all of the dead. Everyone is coming before the Lord, dead or living. And the first set of books are opened. The first set of books are open, which is, I would say, I'll get to that a little bit more in a minute, but that's like the, uh, the annals of history, all of, all of it, all the people, all the stories, good and bad, all of it. Then continuing verse 12, the last book is open, which is the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb's book of life. We are all judged by what is contained in the summary of these books about us. Okay, if, if your name is only found in the first set of books, then you will be judged according to what is found there about you, your thoughts, your actions, your deeds, if your name is only found there. But if your story in Jesus continues on and your name is in the Lamb's book of life also, then you will be judged by what is written about you in the summary of those books, which is... You are in Christ. You are in the Lamb. His death for your sin becomes your atonement. The Lamb's blood is pleaded over your, the doorway of your life. If you think about the Passover, that evil is there and it is out to get you and it has gotten you, but Christ's blood has paid for you and he atones for you. And so death passes by you by his grace. If you are in the Lamb's book, not only does he pay for your sin, but he gives you his perfect record so that now there is no record of wrongs against you that wins the day. Now his record of righteousness is really your story if you receive his righteousness. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Verse 14, here again is the lake of fire. And those whose name is only found in the first book's this is their judgment. This is their judgment. This is where they are sent. But verse 15, for those who are in the Lamb's book of life, they avoid the lake of fire, they stay with the Lamb, and then ultimately what comes next is Revelation 21. They get to inherit a new world where all things are made new. So everyone has their name written on one of the books mentioned in these final verses of chapter 20. Every name appears in the books, but not everyone has their name written in both books. Everyone's name is written in the first set of books, but not everyone's name is in the last book, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. 
So the all-important question, of course, is this. How do you know if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? This is a really important question, okay? I, as a child, had nightmares about this question. What if I think my name is in the book, and I get to heaven, or I get to this moment, and I'm, I'm not there? Uh, what, what then, you know? It's actually a terrible way to grow up. It's not how you should grow up. The reason why I felt this way is in my church growing up, it wasn't totally clear to me whether or not I could lose my salvation. Um, I thought that maybe you became a Christian and you were saved by grace, but the way you stayed in the book was by works. And that, in some, somehow, even though no one could really describe that to me, but there was this fear that you could get in there and get out of there, get in there, get out of there, and um, it's, a, it's a terrible way to live. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. We don't teach that you can lose your salvation. And I'll tell you about that here in just a second. But let's talk about this incredibly important question. Is it possible to be surprised that your name isn't there when you thought it was there in the Lamb's Book of Life? And the answer to that question is yes. It is possible and we, it is possible that you could get to this judgment and think that you, your name is there and it's not there. So let's talk about that scenario because Jesus tells us about that in Matthew 7, 22 through 29, where he says, in the end, some people will be surprised that they're not going to heaven. And it goes like this. These people are surprised and they're surprised because their works didn't get them in. They say on the final day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? Did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? And Jesus says on that final day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And so what, what confused them about the way you get your name in heaven is based on their works. They believed that they, based on the the, what was found in the first two, in the first books, the first set of books, they believed that based on their own record, that they could have a record that would get them in. But what Jesus says in response is, depart from me, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. I never had a personal relationship with you. And so we have to ask then, how does that happen? How does it happen that Jesus that you would have a relationship with Jesus. Well, one of my favorite passages that I learned when I was freaking out as a child and, and having nightmares about not going to heaven was this, this one, uh, John 10, 27 through 28. Interestingly, John 10, 10, I just quoted where it says that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly or to the full. In the same train of thought, Jesus is still speaking, and this is John still writing, who wrote Revelation, he wrote what we were studying today. He writes this about how you can know Christ. He says this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than them all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. 
So the fact is that once you know Christ, once he knows you and you have a relationship with him, then it's not possible that you would ever lose that relationship because it's not contingent on your good works. It's not contingent on your faith. It's not contingent on how many times you go to church or how nice you are or how many times you sin or don't sin. It is contingent on the hand of Jesus holding on to you. And the Father's hand also, he says, we have the same hand. The Father God, Yahweh, is holding on to you. Therefore, you can never be snatched out of his hand, ever. It's not possible. So how can we make sure that we, that he is holding our hand, that he knows us, that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Other scriptures I've had to learn over the years, because we have to teach ourselves we have to preach the gospel to ourselves to teach ourselves what is true. How do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? This is also maybe a, um, a preview of Jim's evangelism class, okay? This is called the Romans Road. I'm not sure what he's going to be telling you in there, but this is one way to share the gospel with others because this is a beautiful summary of the gospel, okay? How, how does it happen that we would have a relationship with God? I've had to memorize these scriptures over the years because my mind will wander in unhelpful directions. Romans 3, 23. Romans 3, 23 and 24. I've memorized the scripture and said it a million times in my life, but now I'm forgetting. <laughs> because I'm looking at the, I'll just go with Romans 5, 8. Uh, for God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do we have a relationship with God? Because God saw us in our sin when we were his enemies. And he demonstrated his love for us in this. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God initiates the relationship and we respond to him. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, the wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin is death, but what Christ gives us in response is he gives us life forevermore. That means Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. There is no condemnation. There can be now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that leads later on to Romans 8.31. It's going to be a longer passage that I have memorized parts of, but I'll read it to you. If you wonder, is it possible once God has saved me and once I have put my faith in this God who saves me, is it possible that something in this world, some future iteration could separate me from the love of Christ? God says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The one who has saved you, the one who you have been united with by faith, Jesus Christ, is interceding for you. He's not condemning you. He's praying for you and he's standing for you, making it therefore impossible that you would receive condemnation if you are in him by faith. It is literally impossible. Jesus would have to condemn himself because you are so united to him by faith. And so we know then that we cannot lose our salvation and the way to stand in the judgment, the way to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life is to respond by faith to this good news of the gospel. If you have responded by faith to this good news, this free offer of grace in Jesus Christ, that means your name is there. And if your name is there, it cannot be deleted or erased or taken out. The authority rests with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you have been united with the Trinity by faith. Therefore, he can never condemn you. So just like we did with the first teaching, let's do this with the second teaching. If we are then not condemned, but if we know we will stand in the judgment and we will then inherit eternal life, and if you know your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and your name is written there not because of your record, not because of how good you are, but because of how great Christ is, how might that transform the way that we live our lives now? Because you might not might not be aware of this or might be surprised by this, but one of the things that happens to Christians is that we, we become Christians by grace, but then we try to perfect ourselves by our own self-effort or by works. Paul gets into this in Galatians 3.3, 3, where he says, Are you who have begun by the Spirit now trying to be perfected through the flesh or by human effort. We Christians can find ourselves falling into the trap of thinking, yes, I know I'm saved by grace, but the way I press on or continue on in the Christian life is by works. Or we can think that the gospel is the ABCs of Christianity. What I just taught you about the Lamb's Book of Life, that we can say, oh, that's, that's the ABCs. That's how you get into the kingdom. But the way you continue on in the kingdom and to maturity in the kingdom is by works. It's by, we would say that's like the A through Z. The D through Z is you need to do a bunch of stuff to please God, and that's how you grow going forward. Think about the way, the difference this could mean for you practically. If you're not just justified by grace, but you're also sanctified by grace as well. Think about that. You can't grow as a Christian without depending on grace in your own life. Think about your marriage Think about how this can work itself out in marriage. Are you growing in your marriage in the times when you really feel like you're just getting it all just right and you're nailing it and you can kind of prove a case to your spouse of how amazing you are? Or are you growing in your marriage when you realize that there are some ways that you kind of might need 
to grow and you really need to depend on the grace of God a little bit more than you thought you did? Or what about in relationships in the church? Is, is the place of growth that we experience the time when we are absolutely and totally convinced that we're right about everything? Or does it come in times when we realize that we have areas we need to grow and so we depend on the grace of God? I don't want you to take from this that we don't need God in areas where we are actually even doing well. Like if you find that you're doing well in an area of life and you then divorce that area off from God and you're like, hey, you know what? I'm actually really good at this. I need God in my weaknesses. I don't really need him in my strengths. Also an error. You'll become incredibly arrogant and obtuse about all of your weaknesses that are found in those areas of strength. The reality is the way forward in the kingdom of God is by grace. If you don't believe that that's true, you should ask someone who knows you well. Whether or not grace leads to uh, greater sanctification in your life or self-assuredness about your own uh, record, I can guarantee you, and we all know that it's true, that the way forward in the kingdom of God until we get to that final day when we receive that, that, final, uh, that final moment, that final statement from God that we indeed have been justified by grace. It's already happened in the past, but that'll be the final declaration. But all the way there in the whole continuation phase of the kingdom, you need to be living by grace. You need to be living by the grace that saves you. That is what we all need. And that is beautiful and good news for you. Um, it's good news for everyone that grace reigns in the church. Grace reigns in the church. On that final day, you're not going to want the first set of books read to you. You're not going to want that. You're not going to want that to be your complete story. So stop trying to make it part of your story, okay? It is it's part of your story, like, yeah, repent of it and acknowledge that you're broken and you need Jesus. But as you move forward, lean into the Lamb's book of life. That's, that's what your identity really is. You're really saved by grace. Yeah, you've got some strengths. Good for you. We all do. But we also have a lot of weaknesses, and we need God in the midst of all of those things. So we need to be encouraged. Be encouraged that your name, if you believed in Jesus Christ trusted him by faith, that there are not, there's not just one set of books, but two. You want to have your name in the second book, okay? You really, really do. And the way you can know for certain that it's there is by trusting Jesus Christ by faith. I'll have a time of Q&A after in a minute. Love to have you come up and talk to me if you have any questions about that. But before I get there, my final point is extremely short, I promise. Because next week, Angus is going to be preaching about the new heavens and the new earth, Okay. But I don't want to end here. I mean, that's where we're going, right? That's where we're going. The next verse is about the new heavens and the new earth. So we need to be encouraged that that is what is on the way, that on the, on the, the cusp, on the, the very the threshold of the judgment is this inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth that we find in chapter 21 and 22. We're going to have a day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I think in this world as we face various trials and tribulations on our way to glory, our lives are filled with brokenness and sin and sorrow. Our bodies are weak, we're frail, we have conflict and discord. 
we hurt each other, we get things wrong, we face all kinds of devastations. I think our great fear is something like this. Will this thing that I'm experiencing, imagine a blank in your mind, will this thing get the final word? Will this thing be ultimately true? Will, will this thing in the end ultimately steal the good? Will this sad thing be the great and final thing? And the answer is an emphatic no, it will not. That thing that is real and difficult and hard to bear with in this life will not get the final word. It is not the final story. New heavens and new earth and redemption. Christ making his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That is the final story. We'll get there much more next week. Finally, what should we do with this? You need to be encouraged that Satan will lose you need to be encouraged that if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then you will inherit glory, and you have been forgiven, and you are set free. And you need to be encouraged that Jesus will make all things new, and he will ultimately make every sad and hard and painful thing become untrue. Like I said, if you're interested in knowing more about the Lamb's book of life and your name being written in it, Nothing would delight me more than talking about that with you or anything else, for that matter, after the service. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your grace in our lives. Father, we, we can't live without it. Uh, we're like people without oxygen spiritually if we don't have grace. And yet, perhaps we should ask the question, how much grace am I breathing today? If it is life, then how often am I thinking about grace? How often am I applying grace? How often am I living in grace? How often am I giving grace? How often am I extending grace? How much is grace my life? And I pray that you would make it my life and our life, and that we would be a people who love to breathe in and breathe out the gospel of grace. We thank you in Jesus' name.